Hi, this is Fairy and Fantasy Class 19. Today we continue our wanderings through Victorian fairy tales. Although we're roaming about fairly freely at this point, the reading for the day was Jack and the Beanstalk, The Three Dwarfs, and The Twelve Brothers. Let's talk about our stories today. Okay, so I want to start off today looking at a kind of a theme or trend which we haven't really been talking about explicitly, but I think informs a lot of the things that we've been seeing. And this is based on the simple sort of one of the major, mm, I don't know what to say, sociological differences between the fairy story, the context of the fairy stories that we read first, the medieval ones, and the ones that we're reading now. And what I'm primarily alluding to is the fact that this collection of stories is explicitly targeted at children, um, which was, of course, as we can guess, not true of the medieval stories that we read. Uh, not that, you know, I think children should all necessarily be discouraged from reading Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and Sir Orfeo, but it's obviously not explicitly intended primarily for an audience of children. Um, now, there are two different things that we can talk about here. One I just want to talk about briefly, and the other I want to spend rather more time on. That is, the first thing is why this happens. Why is it that these fairy stories are now children's stories, where they were not children's stories before. They were just stories before. Um, and I think I, it seems to me very likely, um, I have heard no better explanation of this than the one that Tolkien gives. Um, C.S. Lewis was a very enthusiastic supporter of Tolkien's argument about this, which is basically that this is a consequence. The, the, the relegation of fairy tales to children's literature uh, being a consequence of simply their, 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 their lesser value uh, in the Victorian mind. Serious adults aren't writing and telling these stories anymore for other serious adults because serious adults don't take this kind of thing seriously anymore, but it's okay for kids to read it. The metaphor that Tolkien used to describe how, uh, how fairy tales become children's literature is that it's essentially like the old beaten-up furniture being put into the kids' rooms, right? You don't put the nice expensive furniture in there that you care about because you know, well the kids are probably going to beat the crap out of it, right? So you put in the, in the nursery, you only put in the nursery stuff that you don't really value very much and that you don't mind what happens to it. So from a literary perspective, that is genres and works which people do care about and which people do invest in, they don't leave those for children. They don't, they don't tune the, those towards children. But, but fairy stories, whatever, they're still kind of fun. You know, kids kind of like them, I guess. Um, Tolkien, of course, questions this. That is, that kids in particular like fairy stories. So some children like fairy stories, just like some adults like fairy stories, and some children dislike fairy stories, for, and just like many adults dislike fairy stories. Um, but anyway. And so basically they become of lesser value. People just sort of care about them less, but they don't go away entirely. Now, what, as I said, what I want to spend more time looking at. Um, this factor, by the way, the, the relationship between fairy stories and children is one that we're going to see um, sort of creeping up in interesting ways through the rest of the semester. That is, when 
the traditional fairy tale genre begins to kind of change and be hmm, developed. Is that a fair verb to use? I guess. Developed into what will become the modern fantasy genre, we will see it will take a long time for it to climb out of this sort of generic uh, slot that it's been placed in. That is, that this is for children. And we will see that many of the early writers of fantasy wrote, were writing explicitly children's books, because children's books, because that was the expectation. And it was only as time went on um, that that idea gradually began to be changed. It was one of the things that Tolkien did in writing The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit, he wrote, is a children's book. Um, and The Lord of the Rings was in part sort of an experiment to see, hey, you know, it's, it's okay for adults to be reading this. Let's actually tell a grown-up story uh, based on this. And it doesn't have to be just a children's story. But, as I said, we'll see some of this as we go along. However, one of the things, as I said, that we can see, one of the not one of the causes of this uh, focus on children in fairy stories, and especially in Andrew Lang's collections, but the consequence of that. Um, and I think that we can pretty clearly see evidence of the fact that these are being targeted towards children. Um, one element, which I think is pretty clear, and especially clear in a few of today's stories, is sort of the explicitly pedagogical element, particularly the element of moral pedagogy. Now, Andrew Lang's stories are not as tedious as some versions of fairy tales are, which sort of end with an explicit moral. Therefore, boys and girls, the take-home message from this is this little moral nugget, right? Not that you couldn't do that with Andrew Lang's stories. In fact, I'd like to do that a little bit. We can see in Jack and the Beanstalk, for instance, Jack and the Beanstalk has some pretty explicit uh, moral pedagogy going on in it, right? Jack is being tested, and he passes the test. What's tested? What virtues are... If we had to write a little moral for Jack and the Beanstalk, what does it seem to be getting at? Well, first of all, do you agree that it seems to be getting at something? Is it just me or what? What do you think? force you to think in these ways. Erin? I actually didn't really see one as much as in like uh, Hansel and Gretel, which seems, you know, don't wander into the woods, don't talk to strangers kind of thing. I mean, this seemed, if anything, maybe like a dedication to family, almost, and, and heroics, but I didn't see it as much as I have in some of the other fairy tales, personally. There are some which I think are more explicit. In fact, I would even say The Three Dwarves is, in some places, more explicit. Um, the remarkable obedience of the good stepdaughter, for instance, right? Um, but, <coughs> Mac, what do you think? Well, they actually gave two explicit morals within yeah, that's why it, that's what kind of suggested it to me. We can see that operating, though. Again, I, though, I, you know, just as an aside, I don't disagree with you, Aaron. I think there are some complexities there. I think it's it's not not nearly as pat uh, as it 
<laughs> That's not saying much. Not as bad as it could possibly be. Right? It, is, it, is, it, would, it, it is theoretically possible to strip it down even further. I don't mean to, 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 to suggest that. But um, it's, it's in some ways a little strange. But the framework of the story, or what we're told anyway about it, is explicitly these virtues are being tested and he passes them. Matt, uh, can you find one of the passages that you're thinking of? Yeah. Um, on page 145 at the end, the very previous end for showing you inquiry, she says that, but you showed you inquiry mind and great courage and enterprise, therefore you deserve to rise. And earlier than that, uh, yeah, she asked if he's afraid and he says, I fear nothing when I'm doing right. It's your responsibility to the type of person who slays giants. Yeah. On page 135. That was the moment that really jumped out to me, especially. Um, I am not afraid as long as I am doing right, right? So be a good little boy and good will happen to you, right? If you are a good little boy, then you are the kind of boy that slays giants. And it's interesting, of course, getting in Lang's collection, Jack and the Beanstalk after, a volume after, like it's not even, you know, it's, it's, it's in a subsequent edition to Jack the Giant Killer. Jack the Giant Killer, which I think we gave short shrift to last time, is one of, uh, this is a story which certainly in the English imagination was very evocative. Jack the Giant Killer is, is sort of used metaphorically um, within English literary culture for a couple generations as sort of the iconic, uh, you know, person who rises up and if, you know how every year, it's March now, um, and you know how every year in March, when CBS starts showing the college basketball tournament, you can always expect to hear continually one of two metaphors being used in college basketball terms. Cinderella, right, always comes up, often quite inappropriately, and also the biblical parallel of David and Goliath. We can't ever possibly have like a 14 seed taking out a 3 seed in the NCAA tournament without the 14 seed being compared to David knocking out the giant Goliath. Perhaps you have seen fewer tournaments than I have and have not become quite so bored by this as I am. Sportscasters are deeply unimaginative uh, in the metaphors that they use and it always sort of strikes me that it seems to be striking them as like this very sort of powerful and evocative, evocative metaphor that they're using, even though they're not really thinking about it very much. However, if the NCAA tournament were a British phenomenon, they would totally call the 14 seed Jack the Giant Killer when he takes out uh, number three. It is, it, is, it, it is an iconic story. And what it is an icon of is like the little guy making good, the little guy rising up. Because you see, Jack is not just like a crazy lucky person. He's not just somebody who sort of lucks into this and takes credit for it. This is somebody who first starts off, you'll notice, by ingenuity, right? He kills the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. How? How does he take out the first giant, do you remember? It's a combination of both strength and cleverness. I should say cleverness first and strength second. Well, what's your first problem when taking down a giant? He's really high, right? How do you get high enough off the ground to do anything but slash at a giant's ankles? Not to mention avoiding the rather larger blows he's likely to be aiming at you if you fight him toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He makes the pit. 
He digs a huge pit for the, for the giant to fall in. So there the giant falls into the pit, and then there's his head right there in range. And he caves in his head with a, with a, with a pickaxe, right? The pickaxe with which he dug the pit, right? So you see, this is clever, resourceful, not much of a fight. This is not a knight slaying uh, a giant. The fight between Jack and the giant of Mont Saint-Michel has almost nothing in common with the fights, the several literary fights between King Arthur and the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. He overcomes it by cleverness and swift and forceful action. His second giants he kills how? He gets himself thrown into prison. Yeah, he just like managed to, yeah, he managed to like, you know, lasso them out the window, right? Pull the rope tight and strangle them and then goes outside and stabs them both. Now again, this is not just like, he's not just lucky. It's not that he is just like, ah, I am weak, but by my devious plans, I managed to like just overcome them purely with brains. It's not purely with brains either. And by the end of the story, he, and I love when he acquires his, like, like, so he goes out, like, naturally wanting to expand his giant killing career, he goes out and acquires, like, a cloak of invisibility and a sword of quickness and all these other things, which, like, cool, I guess. Like, they were on clearance that week. I don't know where he got them. <laughs> but anyway, he goes, and then from then on, he's just fighting almost, still not quite, because he still has his invisibility cloak and stuff, but he's fighting almost toe-to-toe with these giants, and he's, like, hacking off their legs uh, in, in almost fair combat. Um, so at the end, he's fighting almost like we see uh, knights in Arthurian in other Arthurian stories. This is an Arthurian story, right? This is at, actually at the time of King Arthur. Um, so this is the story of Jack, the giant killer, who rises from what seems to be a fairly common boy. We're not told he is of, you know, he's not like the child of a king or anything who admires from afar the tales of the deeds of King Arthur and his knights and who rises to prominence by his own actions and resourcefulness. Well, now we get Jack number two, no relation, with another giant, also no relation. So so we have a kind of setup for this. But certainly, again, the difference, I come back to those lines that Mac pointed out. Jack says, I am not afraid, so long as I am doing good. Jack the giant killer never talked like that, even though he was doing good. And in the end, he's praised for his ingenuity of mind by the fairy. By the fairy who says, this whole thing was a setup. I'm the one who gave the magic beans to the butcher. It was all a test, and you passed the test. How did he pass the test? What did he do? She says explicitly to pass this. She, she would have taken it back. Uh, he climbed the beanstalk and he had just stood there staring at it and going like, ah, oh, that's kind of unusual. She would have <coughs> just left him in his oven-driven state and restored the cow to him. Yeah, he, he, his inquisitiveness is praised, right? You saw that beanstalk? Well, you climbed up that beanstalk. And not only did he climb up at the once, but he also shows resolution and courage once he's there. He goes to the castle, he finds that there are giants there, he escapes, that was good. And then he goes back two more times. Very good. Good job, Jack, you've passed the test, apparently. 
you get to keep the beans and you don't get the cow back. Which we were told he would have just, they would have returned the cow. Test over. Jack, the, Jack and the Beanstalk, though, has still some kinds of rough edges, though. I mean, as I said before, I agree with Aaron. It's not an obviously clear-cut morality tale from the beginning. Kelly? It sounded to me almost as though she was praising the boy who traded the cows for the, the cow for the beans in the first place for, for his intelligence, almost. <laughs> Yeah, which, when we first get it, doesn't sound that way at all, right? I mean, the setup, and, and, and it's important to remember, I think, after all of the stuff with the test and like, oh, like this was all a test by the good fairy, I guess she's a good fairy. Um, seems like a good fairy. Um, though you can't always tell. Um, like, her, she rides a coach that's pulled by peacocks, and I, I guess that's good. Um, I've never met an evil peacock. Yeah, though the good fairy in Sleeping Beauty drove a chariot pulled by dragons, so I could... It could be from different regions, you never know. <laughs> you don't know, exactly. I mean, seeing her pulling up with her flaming chariot pulled by dragons, I wouldn't have guessed she was the good guy, necessarily. And this one, I mean, okay. Maybe she was from the Orient. Though if we remember... Okay, are you ready for an unexpected and obscure foundations quiz? What Greek deity drives a chariot pulled by peacocks? Isn't it Hera? Got it. It is indeed Hera. In memory of Argos Penoptes, who gets, who gets killed, the one she sets to guard, Io, and then afterwards his eyes are placed on the feathers of the peacock, and she has peacocks pull her chariot as, uh, in memory of him. Yes. So that's kind of a dubious connection. I mean, the only other person we've seen with the peacock chariot is, well, I mean, it depends on which story we're reading and where our sympathies lie, but she is certainly not an unambiguously excellent role model and character, especially if you're, I don't know, Roman. Uh, Aeneas is not a fan of Juno, of course. But anyway, um, we don't know. It's... It's hard to say, but, but, but back to Kelly's point. In the second paragraph, we're told Jack was a giddy, thoughtless boy, but very kind-hearted and affectionate. Okay, so he's dumb but nice. This is our setup for Jack. There, has been a hard win- there had been a hard winter, and after it, the poor woman had suffered from fever and ague. Joe did no work as yet, but, and by degrees, they grew dreadfully poor. The windows... This window... Okay, let me try this again. The widow saw that there was no means of keeping Jack and herself from starvation, but by selling her cow. So one morning she said to her son, I am too weak to go myself, Jack, so you must take the cow to market for me and sell her. This is all very moving. The poor, sick widow, the little boy who's still little enough not to do any work for himself, right now has to go sell their only cow. Jack liked going to market to sell the cow very much. I'm not sure what to do with that sentence. But anyway. But as he went on the way, he met a butcher who had some beautiful beans in his hand. Jack stopped to look at them, and the butcher told the boy that they were of great value and persuaded the silly lad to sell the cow for these beans. 
When he brought them home to his mother, instead of the money she expected for her nice cow, she was very vexed and shed many tears, scolding Jack for his folly. He was very sorry, and mother and son went to bed very sadly that night. Their last hope seemed gone. The end. <laughs> right. Both of them say, but, but Jack, well, I was going to say Jack has passed the test. Of course, the test is not yet. The test is, what do you do when you see an enormous magical beanstalk growing in your backyard? Do you climb it or not? This is what the fairy says apparently was the test all along. But of course, the precondition for this test is selling the cow for the stupid beans in the first place. I guess the prerequisite is you have to be dumb enough to get the beans in the first place. I mean, this is not a flattering description. All that he knows, he sees the beans are beautiful, and he's told, like a sucker, that they're valuable, and the mom doesn't buy it for a minute. And with the, you know, the pathos of the sick widow mom and the only cow and everything else, it sure seems like he's done a stupid thing. But it turns out not to be a stupid thing. But, again, this is one of the things that I point to in this story as sort of one of those rough edges. If it's a, if it's a morality tale, it's a morality tale with rough edges. What do we do with this? This is clearly not a, a take-home more so, boys and girls. If you are entrusted with your family's only opportunity for survival... Make sure to give it away to the first con man you find who wants to give you something almost perfectly useless in exchange. Then your family will be blessed and wealthy and all will turn out well. I mean, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's true, I guess. Yes, the, that's the, the, the con artist's guild would put that one out, I guess. But um, There are other rough edges in this story, aren't there? I mean, the fairy is, she sort of has set herself up as like the moral arbiter of this story. I have established this test, and if you pass this test, I will prove. She even gives a little like sneaky second test at the end. Jack, well done. You have killed the giant and passed the test. Now, go murder his wife in cold blood. But Jack passes that one too. I wouldn't feel quite right about that. I would only like to kill her if we were fighting. Good job, Jack. That was a trap. Right? So here she, I mean, she is very explicitly in a sort of a moral evaluative position over him, and he's passing. What about the harp? The harp, we're told, was obviously a fairy. How do we know? It talks. It talks. <laughs> it is a magic harp, which talks. And what does it say? Help! Yes. It, it cries. What do we do with that? That is... I, I thought the fairy told him that all that stuff belonged to him, that he was the rightful master of all these things. If the fairy harp is in league with the... you know, with the peacock chariot moral fairy? Shouldn't it be, you know, happy to see its rightful master and not crying out to the thieving giant who has been holding it prisoner? Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> 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 Very plausible. 
Could happen to harps, I guess. Will? I was going to agree with that. He explains the harp as they're running away, and it's fine. He actually owns the harp. Right. Right. But unfortunately, the harp didn't recognize it, even though it's fairy, I guess. But again, the point is, the, the harp seems to be operating under either a different set of rules or from a very different perspective. That is, either it knows much less than the other fairy for some reason, or it just obeys different rules. It is being stolen from its master. Master by conquest, it's true, but still. And it cries out against that. Because stealing is bad. Wait, maybe that's a take-home message, too. Except that's a good thing here, because it all really belongs to him anyway. It's tricky. It's tricky. In the second story we read today, in The Three Dwarfs, we see even more rough edges. On the one hand, some more, even more obvious and over-the-top moral lessons being taught by our excellent moral exemplar, the good stepdaughter. Right? But at the same time, even more and even stranger, rough edges. What are the virtues praised in this story, in the story of the three dwarves? Uh, one of them seem, clearly seems to be kindness to your own fault. Like, she only has this crust of bread, and she willingly, like, gives it to him, even though she has a chance of starving because of this. Yes. This is... Um, emphasized doubly because we get both the positive and the negative illustrations, right? We get both a good stepdaughter who does the right thing and shows kindness and generosity to these three dwarfs, even though it is potentially at her own expense and even though she doesn't have much for herself. And we see the selfish perspective of the wicked daughter, right? So we get that clearly from two angles. Similarly, what else do we learn from her interactions with the dwarfs? How does she find the strawberries? By sweeping the back step, right? They tell her to go sweep the back step, and she does. Whereas, again, the wicked daughter refuses. What am I, your servant? No way. What virtue is being praised here? Obedience. Obedience is her number one virtue, right? She is obedient even to her obviously malicious and wicked stepmother, because... She is her stepmother. So when your stepmother says, you know, <coughs> go out in the bitter winter in a paper dress and don't come back till you find a basket of strawberries, you do it if you're a good girl. Or like take an axe and chop a hole in the river and wash the thread. I didn't get the thread, like the yarn business. There's, I feel like there's something I'm not understanding there about like the boiling of the yarn. Do you have any, can you illuminate this, Ken? You have to boil your yarn twice when you're making it. First, to get it so you can get all the thread facing the right direction so you can twist it in the yarn. And then after you dye it, you have to boil in hot water to get the dye to first adhere to it, and then cold water to fix the dye. So what she's assigning her is just sort of like an extreme version of what is supposed to happen, like you're not supposed to wash it in cold water, though not necessarily exposing yourself in the wintertime in, like, a river, which she's obviously hoping she will fall into. Right. Okay. Okay. That does help. Now, 
Okay, so uh, obedience, clearly. Though I would say that with the dwarves, there's something else, too. Because unlike with the stepmother, she's not, she's not in a relationship with the dwarves which would make obedience sort of necessary. She, she's not in a subordinate relationship to the dwarves as she is to her stepmother. It's more like compliance, I guess, than obedience. Yeah, Terry? Yeah, I, it does seem a little a, a little broader than that. That is I, clearly the same sort of aspects of her character, which lead her to be so obedient to her stepmother also, uh, make her willing to do that. And I, I, I think humility is a pretty good way to think about it. She's not above helping them and sweeping their backstep if they ask for it, right? Um, again, And I think, again, we can see this um, illustrated really clearly by the wicked daughter, right? You know, in her response. What am I, your servant? No way, I'm not going to do that, right? Um, shows, I think, sort of the, the opposite virtue that our heroine is showing. So, again, pretty, some pretty clear morals. Okay, girls, paying attention. This is how you're supposed to be, right? Here's an illustration. And if you do, you will become more beautiful every day. Gold will fall out of your mouth, and someday a king will marry you. The end, Right? So, I mean, this, that, that sounds all pretty straightforward, but again, there are a lot of rough edges to this story, too. There are other things that happen which don't just fit into this pattern. Other elements, elements which I would call fairy elements, magical elements, which are, which are some of them never explained or integrated. Again, the dwarves seem fairly like they are not acting in the same way that the fairies in Jack and the Beanstalk act, like that is, they haven't set up the test, right? Then they've not orchestrated the whole thing. But they are moral judges, right? Right? The first girl comes and she does the right things, and they're like, three thumbs up, right? We shall give her blessings. And the other one is horrible, and they're like, three thumbs down. We give her curses. That's all fairly clear. They seem to be a reward mechanism. But... But again, there are lots of things that are not attached to that, too. Brittany, what were you going to suggest? Uh, that after she gets thrown out from the window in the gutter, she turns into a duck. <laughs> a duck again. Yes. Yes, the duck motif now growing apace. Uh, and thus far, ducks have randomness in common, it seems. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, that actually, that's a fairly broad thing. Many people like rhymes, uh, even to their detriment, uh, like Rumpelstiltskin. But, um, yeah, yeah, she turns into a duck. We don't know how she turns into a duck. There's no dwarfs on hand to turn her into a duck. Um, how is she unduckified? <laughs> De-ducked? Her, his sword over her? Yeah, and she knows this. Right? Tell the king to come and swing his sword three times over me, and then I'll be restored. And so the king is like, duck, of course. Swing my sword three times, and it turns back into the queen. And yet she transformed before, before he did that, to go tuck her son in. Maybe it's like a Cinderella thing going on. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I mean... That's one of the interesting things about this story. And if all we got was this sort of like extreme and sort of simplified sort of saccharine 
be a good little girl, and wonderful blessings will come to you. Therefore, little girls, be just as obedient and humble and generous as this girl was, and maybe you too will be, you know, and it will make you more beautiful, and you will be rich and, and happy and everything else. I mean, that would be comprehensible. We would know what to do with that. We might not enjoy it very much, um, but we'd know what to do with it. But then there are all these other things, like the duck. How does she turn into a duck? We don't know. We don't know. But, and I would suggest, actually, and here I am thinking once again of the Black Bull of Norway, too. I think that in these stories, we have to be careful. We want to look for links. That is, we would really quite like to know the mechanism by which she was transformed into a duck upon being thrown into the stream. Who did it? How and why? But we don't know. We're not told. And the story doesn't seem to me exceptionally interested in that. I mean, no hint is ever given. Um, what do you make of, this is kind of random, but what do you make of at the very beginning the thing about washing and milk and wine? People really didn't understand that. Well, the... I, okay, this is tricky to answer, because on, on one level, it seems reasonably simple, but I don't think that that's the only level on which to understand this. Um, that is, it seems explicitly to, to suggest a life of comfort and ease, right? The promise is made to her, you shall wash with milk and drink wine whereas my daughter will wash with water and drink water, presumably not the same water, right? But anyway, <laughs> both of them will happen with water. Um, and so, so the, I mean, I, exactly why, I mean, like the water and wine I get, the washing with milk I don't really get. Maybe that's something else like the yarn cat that like if I knew more would make sense in some way. I, I, don't, I, I don't know of any washing with milk traditions. Does this happen? Anyone ever washed with milk? Every morning. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is throughout fairy tales, they always talk about people having white hands. And maybe the association with like washing with milk will give you white hands because milk is sort of white. Right. It's, right. When it comes, like proper milk isn't actually white. The reason milk is white is actually be diet white. But right, like, right. Apart from this, maybe, yeah, so like gentler on your hands, that it's like a luxury, that it's not, you know, you'll still have to wash, but you'll be washing with, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe. But anyway, again, what seems reasonably clear is however that is and why ever that is, it seems to be clearly like this is a good thing, right? You will be granted these luxuries, whereas my daughter will not have these luxuries and she'll be washing water and drinking water. Because, of course, we see this shift around right away, right? The promise is true on the first day. On the second day, they both have water for everything and on the starting on the third day and from that day on. Her own daughter has the wine and the milk, and, and the stepdaughter has the water. So it's, I, I said on the one level, it's pretty simple. But the wine and the milk, those are really evocative ideas. I mean, there are a lot of associations from lots of different directions with wine and milk there. Um, and I'm not at all sure that it's safe just to be like, oh, we see, it's just like a, you know, it's... It's about material luxury, and that's all. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the "that's all" part. Um, but no, I agree. I think that that's interesting. Even the boot, like, what's up with the boot? 
does magic happen there? It seems possible. Say, like, there's a hole which closes in the boot. Perhaps this is a natural phenomenon. That is, if you put water in the boot, it like will make the weather the leather swell and close the hole. I guess. But he goes up to check. Like he's surprised. Um, he obviously expected the water, which suggests he didn't want to marry this woman in the first place, right? That, like he said, if the water stays in this boot overnight, then I'll marry her. And he gives her a boot with a hole in it. So I'm thinking he was leaning the other way uh, on the whole remarriage question, especially given his sentiments about marriage that he expresses, um, which don't seem to be overwhelmingly positive. But the hole closes and the boot keeps water. Is it obviously definitely magical? No, I mean, you know, it could happen. It could happen. But again, he's sufficiently surprised to at least make one wonder. I don't know. Um, But the duck, and especially the sword, especially the sword, why? Why? What do we do with that? If, like I said, I'm going to suggest that what we should be doing with this is not trying to write the cause and effect backstory. There is a kind of blithe disregard for cause and effect in the way that we normally think about cause and effect. And this, I think we can see in a bunch of different stories. Why? Why should it be that Sleeping Beauty will either die or afterwards fall asleep when she pricks her hand on a spindle? Why a spindle? Why should that be the mechanism? I don't know. It's not clear. Um, anyway, so I mean, this 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 kind of thing. Like, why is it that the waving of the sword or the swinging of the sword above the queen duck or duck queen? That's better. Um, above the duck queen um, makes her turn back into a queen again. Um, and again, I think if our response to this is Hmm, let us think about this until we manage to establish some kind of a satisfactory cause and effect relationship here is not right. I mean, that is, we could speculate, well, she turns into a duck because obviously, like, I guess those dwarfs must still be around. They're the only magical force that we've seen so far explicitly in the story. So those dwarfs must still be hanging around and blessing her. And they're, they're not wanting to let the, uh, the, uh, the nasty, wicked stepmother and the wicked daughter get away with the thing that they're perpetrating. Not that the king's likely to be very confused by this desperately ugly frog-emitting or toad-emitting uh, woman. It doesn't seem to be likely to be permanently uh, uh, deceived that this is his wife, right? I mean, I love that line. It's like, why are, why are frogs coming out of your mouth or toads coming out of your mouth instead of gold? Like, I can't help but notice <laughs> there's a change here. Right, um, but anyway, so I mean, I I I I resist the kind of extrapolation or or addition that would say, well, okay, therefore we're supposed to assume that there must be a mechanism behind that, and that mechanism must be the dwarves, and we so we say, we're not given that, we're just given she's thrown into the stream, and when next we see her, she's a duck. And then when the sword is waved over her head, and we're not told it's an obviously magical sword or anything, like a, you know, like a magic sword of deduckification <laughs> that he's waving above her, it's just like the king and his sword. But it is suggestive, anyway. That is, the second thing is I don't suggest we do nothing with it. 
there is something there. Right? When reading fairy stories, I often find myself thinking in one of my favorite lines in Lewis Carroll's Through, Through the Looking Glass, like Alice as she does after reading the poem Jabberwocky, when she says, it fills my head with ideas, but I'm not quite sure what they are. Right? This is, by the way, why I love the Black Bull of Norway. It's, I think, not only my favorite, but I think obviously the best fairy story that we've read so far in Lang's collection. It does this really well, doesn't it? Well, but before I go back and indulge myself in the Black Bull of Norway, which I'm obviously not going to have time to do, in fact, um, so maybe I will save that indulgence for next time, we see, that we see a similar thing with the Twelve Brothers. We have sort of an even more unclear moral situation in which there are even more rough edges, right? I mean, on the one hand, the don't kill all 12 of your sons for the sake of your daughter seems pretty clear. Though, why would anyone do that? I don't understand that either. Um, you have a theory? Yeah, that's, there, there are some things about Henry VIII that are not very explicable, but, you know, that is, actually, the desire to have boys when you're a king and the desire to have boys. Um, what king in history who ever, like, had 12 sons and is like, I shall kill them all for the sake of my daughter, or, like, I have absolutely no idea what on earth is going on there. Carol? I mean, I can see it because you have 12 sons, they're always fighting over who gets what part of the kingdom and their kingdoms and pieces. The daughter, you can marry her off to someone else, and join your lands with theirs, and you have a huge giant piece of land with theirs. I mean, it actually makes sense to me. Although, I still wouldn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that this is a pro child killing argument or anything. No. I can see that. It still seems to me a little more efficient to keep the. Like, keep one boy if, if one is going to simplify things. Goodness knows more than one son can lead you into trouble. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Wars of the Roses, enough said. But, um, but anyway, uh, the moment, the central moment in that story that I would point to is the bizarre thing with the flowers. You pluck the flowers and now your brothers are all ravens. Good job. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? What? Why are their lives connected to these flowers? How on earth is my being silent for seven years going to change that? Like, why is that? It doesn't seem appropriate. Like, that is, I mean, it doesn't seem obviously to match in the sense of like, ah, I am clearly doing penance for my fault or something. It makes even less sense than the labors that the girl has to go through in the Black Bull of Norway. If I can't discuss it at length, I can at least continue to make references to it. <laughs> Christine, go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree that there are definitely sort of go-to fairy tale numbers, right? Um, and yeah, that is, that's a big topic because these numbers mean a lot of things. And I, I, 
as a medievalist, it's hard not to not to smile about this. Um, one of the most one of the favorite books of the entire Middle Ages. That is to medieval people, not emphatically not to modern people. Uh, was Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio. Um, nothing like a good, long, rambling uh, Latin commentary on a work by Cicero uh, to be, to like rocket to the top of the bestseller charts and stay there for several centuries. We love the commentary on the dream of Scipio by Macrobius. And he, he, he goes off about numbers like as much as you can possibly want to know about medieval numerology uh, from Macrobius, though uh, he covers almost every possible base, and so pretty much anything you want to support, you could probably support out of Macrobius. But <clears throat> I want to keep thinking and keep thinking in these terms as we move on. Look at these these transitions. Look at these magical elements. Look at these. These moments, I mean, we've been noticing lots of moments when these stories seem to not make sense, seem to be strange or funny. What can we see there? How can we see this operating? In what ways is it different from the ways in which we saw the magic operating in the medieval stories? It was sometimes inscrutable, unexpected, unpredictable there too. But I don't think it was quite the same. Anyway, I promise to let you go. Look at that, 20 seconds early. <laughs> I consider that keeping my promise, I guess. All right. For the next class, read our last set of Lang stories, Rapunzel and Snowdrop from the Red Fairy Book and The Enchanted Ring from the Green Fairy Book. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.